The third season of Ask a Harvard Professor is brought to you by the Harvard University Employees Credit Union. Great question. Absolutely fantastic question. Fascinating question. That's a great question. I love that question. It's very complicated. That's a great idea. That's That's also a great great question. question. Climate change may be the hardest problem the human race has ever confronted. In a single century, humans have set in motion events that will unfold on a geological timescale, ultimately redrawing coastlines around the globe as ice sheets melt and sea level rises. What to do about the warming is dominated by uncertainties. Can humanity agree to meet its energy needs with renewables such as wind and solar power to run the world's economies on carbon-free energy? If so, how quickly could the transition be made? Is there a threshold beyond which the effects of greenhouse gases will become irreversible? Can solar geoengineering, the lofting of reflective particles into the stratosphere, help stop this runaway train? Welcome to the Harvard Magazine podcast, Ask a Harvard Professor. Joining us today are two guests expert in these questions. Daniel Schrag is director of the Harvard University Center for the Environment, Sturgis Hooper Professor of Geology and Professor of Environmental Science and Engineering, and an authority on what ancient climates can tell us about the future of our Earth. He is the recipient of a MacArthur Fellowship and of the James B. McIlwain Medal from the American Geophysical Union. From 2009 to 2017, he served on President Obama's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology. At the Harvard Kennedy School, He is co-director of the Science, Technology, and Public Policy Program. David Keith is Gordon McKay Professor of Applied Physics in the School of Engineering and Applied Sciences and Professor of Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. He is the faculty director of Harvard's Solar Geoengineering Research Program and the founder of Carbon Engineering, a company developing technology to capture carbon directly from ambient air. For more than two decades, He has been a leading thinker on ways to improve the effectiveness of solar geoengineering and to reduce its risks. Welcome to you both. Thanks, John. Thank you. Great to be here. Dan, my first question is for you. What does paleoclimate data suggest lies in store for us at current CO2 concentrations, which reached a seasonal peak of 417 parts per million in May 2020? Well... I think there are many lessons from the paleoclimate record, but I think it's important for everybody to understand uh, the difference between what we see in the geologic past with warmer climates and higher CO2 levels and what we're experiencing today. In the past, when we've had times with higher carbon dioxide levels and warmer temperatures, the changes have been very slow. What that means is that Ecological communities have had time to migrate, to adapt. And the slow timescale means that what we're seeing in the geologic past is kind of the equilibrium climate when things have adjusted on slow timescales to reach a kind of steady state. What we're doing is roughly 100 times faster than the natural pace of climate change over the last, say, a few hundred thousand years, the ice age cycles that come and go on tens of thousands of years, we're doing it on century timescales. 
And so what that means is we have a sense of the direction of the change, but there's a lot of uncertainty about how fast things are going to change. A great example would be the ice sheets in Greenland and Antarctica. We're pretty sure at this point, every summer now, the Greenland ice sheet melts much, much more than new snow forms in the wintertime. So it's losing mass every summer. And the net over the course of the year raises sea level by something like about a millimeter of sea level rise per year. It's already very likely that it's past the point of no return. That is, if we go to still higher CO2 levels, 450, 500, 550, essentially we're going to melt the entire Greenland ice sheet. That's something like seven meters of sea level rise overall. That's a huge amount. But, but what we don't know is how fast it's going to happen. When we look back at the geologic past, we can see times where CO2 was just a little bit higher and there was no ice on Greenland. And that tells us that the Greenland ice sheet is fundamentally unstable. But it doesn't tell us how long it takes to melt it, given the experiment we're doing to the climate today. And so without intervention, things look very bad. We've started in motion a series of, of changes in the Earth system. And the, and the challenge is those changes all have very long timescales from centuries to thousands of years. And figuring out how to control those systems that are so massive and have such long timescales is an enormous challenge. This is a question for both of you. First, David, how difficult would it be from a purely technological point of view, to meet all the world's power needs with renewable energy? And how long would that conversion take? Um, first of all, I wanna push back on something you said in the introduction, which is that this is the hardest problem humanity's ever faced. I forget your precise words. And as somebody who, I worked on climate my entire career now, 30 years, but I've paid attention to other public policy problems. and. I just don't think that's true. I think the problem of managing nuclear weapons in a divided world, I think the problem of managing biological weapons, perhaps, there are other problems that are, are, are probably sharper when it comes to uh, consequence for humanity and um, and sort of the intense difficulty of getting to, to agreements. So I, I do see climate as the most important global scale environmental problem, but not all problems have to be the absolute most important problem, not all knobs need to be turned to 11 for things to be worth solving. Uh, let me just comment on that, because again, this is part of the fun. Um, <laughs> we're, we're, uh, what I say, David, sometimes, and you, may, and you may disagree with this, but I say that you know, many people claim that climate change is the most urgent problem we face. And to me, it's backwards, actually. Climate change is one of the most difficult problems we face precisely because it's never the most urgent problem. There's always exactly. something more urgent, which makes climate change so difficult. Yeah. Dealing with a timescale, dealing with a problem that's inherently long timescales is, is painful and very, very difficult. And uh, anyway. And because of the central fact to know about climate, which is that climate change is in some way proportional to cumulative emissions, that has all these profound consequences among them, the fact that even 
among them, the fact that even once we bring emissions to zero, we haven't in any way solved the problem, we've just stopped the problem getting worse. But the other part of that cumulative nature is it is in fact rationally true that in any particular year, it doesn't really make any difference what our emissions are. It's this cumulative emissions. And that means that as much as we feel like we want to make it a crisis in order to force political action, in some objective sense, on no year will it be a crisis, even though overall it's this terrible environmental impact. That's right. And human impact. That's right. Which is, again, you know, I think some people, they, they certainly the environmental groups want to make this an urgent problem. And the, the frustrating thing about this problem is it, it's important. It's just, it's just, um, it, it's always easier. It's always easy to worry about something that's right in front of you that's going to have a short time scale response. So in answer to the question of <clears throat> how quickly we could cut emissions, you asked, you, I, think, I think you said, um, what is the technical possibility for how quickly we cut emissions? Is that basically how you phrased it? Yeah. What, from a technological point of view, how long would it take to meet all the world's power needs with renewable energy? Yeah. So I think that problem is is simply ill-posed. I mean, the short, ugly answer is you could do it in 10 minutes with a big war where you just shut everything down. So presumably what you mean is do it in a way that keeps something happening, but then you have to define what are the necessary services. And unless you do that, the question is ill-posed. If you mean do it with no impact at all on the economy, no slowing of the economy, then the answer might be infinity. It's extremely hard to transition. Um, so, so that answer does not have any technocratic closed form answer. These are inherently trade-offs. So my view is that it's possible for us to uh, decarbonize in just a few decades, technically possible to do that and still keep you know the fundamentals of modern civilization going, still keep transportation and communication networks happening, still keep people fed. But if you want to do that in a couple decades, you need a level of uh, command and control that's akin to wartime, where you simply nationalize a bunch of industries, shut down a bunch of things you don't want, uh, take over a bunch of siting decisions in a way that's uh, very different from what we're familiar with in democracies. And I think with decisions like that, I think you can uh, uh, do it in just a few decades, but but with enormous social and actually other environmental consequences. So... Um, the bottom line is the answer to that question is entirely dependent on one's political assumptions and on questions about what the, the side impacts, both social and, 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 and economic, that you're willing to tolerate. And Dan, why has decarbonizing economies the world over proven so difficult to affect from a political point of view? Well, I, I actually think until recently, decarbonization was relatively expensive, it required either foregoing inexpensive fossil fuels or replacing them with technologies that were pretty much all much more expensive. And it's really just in the last five to 10 years that we've seen, for example, solar and wind emerge as one of the least expensive forms of electricity generation, at least at low penetration where you don't have to worry so much about storage or the intermittency of the electricity. And, and that's extraordinary. That's like a new world all of a sudden. My prediction is that the, the next decade or two, we will be building solar and wind like crazy. This year in the US, 75% of new electricity generating capacity was wind and solar. That's incredibly good news. Now, the bad news 
is that the total amount we're building is something on the order of 20 gigawatts. And 20 gigawatts is not nearly fast enough. Just to put it in sort of round numbers, the total U.S. electricity consumption is something like 500 gigawatt years. And if we were to electrify transportation and electrify home heating and electrify industry, we'd probably double or even triple that electricity demand. But let's let's assume that we're very, very big on conservation and we we only double our electricity demand. That means we would need something like a thousand gigawatt years of electricity in the near future. A thousand gigawatt years if we were to do it all with wind and solar and forget the problem of intermittency. Let's imagine that it matched somehow matched perfectly and we could just ignore the times when there's no wind or no sun. That's a minimum of roughly 4,000 gigawatts of wind and solar because the capacity factor between wind and solar average is going to be something like 25%. So you just do that 20 gigawatts a year, 4,000 gigawatts, that's, and that's the minimum required. You probably need many times that. Um, you're talking about at current rates, something like 200 years of time. Now, I'm not saying it's going to require 200 years. I think David's exactly right. It's certainly possible to accelerate it. But what is, you know, not just technically feasible, but foreseeable, I think it's likely to be much longer than a few decades, unfortunately. I'd love to be wrong about this. I just, I just don't see that people are going to be willing to make the kind of sacrifices um, that like World War II required. I and mean, we're talking about real sacrifices, financial sacrifices, you know, giving up healthcare, giving up education, things that people care about. And not only do we have to do it here in the U.S., but it has to be done globally. And so when I look at that, I say, boy, I'd love to imagine that it could happen in 20 or 30 years, but it doesn't seem very likely to me. Yeah, just to be clear, I think it's extraordinarily unlikely that it happens in 20 years. And I actually don't think I would vote for it. I don't think it would be ethical doing it that fast. This is a trade-off about the benefits to future generations of cutting CO2 emissions very sharply, which are, are huge, against uh, other environmental damage of doing this too quickly and, and social damage. You can't do this in 20 or 30 years in a way that uh, maintains things we care about from healthcare to human rights. If you're going to do it that fast, you're going to tear up a bunch of, of rights and, and uh, uh, stop doing a bunch of other things we care about. So I, I personally don't think that trade-off would be ethical, but I don't think it's technologically impossible, or I think you have to be very careful about saying that and define it carefully. I think the key point I'm trying to make is these are human choices, political choices, and we shouldn't imagine there's some technocratic, turn-the-crank, value-free answer. There's no value-free answer for how quickly we should cut emissions. There's no value-free threshold for what is the maximum amount. And there's, well, those two things. I, I think, you know, maybe one way to frame it, because I think something David said is really important to pay attention to. Just when you think about wind and solar and building something that fast, you know, forget the Green New Deal. It's talking about 10 years. Let's talk about 20 or 30 years. What David said is exactly right, that, that doing something on that timescale means forget permitting, right? You're just going to yeah. build stuff. <laughs> And, and let's people talk don't about like how that. this actually would work. Yeah, how this would actually work. So let's say that you want to do it on 
uh, wind and solar. So in the near term in the U.S., you do a lot of solar because the solar capacity factors are much higher, and you do that associated with a huge amount of long-distance transmission. Right now, the time to, to permit big long-distance transmission lines is basically infinity. We can't do it. So you'd have to start this. If you imagine you know, Congress really wanting to do this in 15, 20 years, your first law is the National Clean Power Permitting Law. And it says that local people get to complain, they get to argue, but they get like three weeks to do it. And then there's a final binding decision, and it's backed up by troops. If farmers don't like it, they get pushed out of the way. It has to be that way if you're going to go that fast. If you're going to allow every individual local person to fight every uh, installation all the way through the court system, you never do it. Another, another nice example for people who live in the Northeast is, you know, why is it that we don't have a fast train? You know, using 1970s French TGV technology, we should be able to go from New York to Boston in about 45 minutes. Um, why does it take three and a half hours? And that's on the fast train. And the answer is actually very simple. The answer is called Connecticut. The tracks through Connecticut on the coast of New London are, you, trains go 20 miles an hour. So what would it take to actually have high-speed rail to get rid of airplanes that are flying short distances from New York to Boston to Washington, D.C.? The answer is, we could do it with existing technology. It just would require seizing people's homes and building straight tracks. And the governor of Connecticut is the only person who has the authority to do that. Why would the governor of Connecticut seize people's homes in Connecticut so that people could go from Boston to New York very quickly? Very hard to imagine in our current political system. Maybe this is a useful back and forth. I mean, I don't think it's going to happen in 20, 30 years. But I also think that in order to get any substantive fast enough to satisfy me or Dan progress, we will need some new political reality. And the answer is, in the end, the governor of Connecticut can be overruled federally, just to take that example. And I think that we will, I think we will get to some level of federal consensus and power around decarbonization that will be slower than a kind of 20-year pace that, that I said, but quicker than the 200-year pace Dan said, but it will require some political discontinuity between now and then. I don't mean a revolution, but I mean something that really moves this towards the center of the political agenda. And I think that is actually quite possible, but it's very hard to guess when it will happen. I, I, I think a useful way to think about this, and I, and I agree, David, I, and I wasn't trying to say that we were going to do it in no. 200 years. I was just saying that the current pace if you just sort of have to scale it out, it's on a multi-hundred-year timescale, and that's that's an important number to know. Um, I would sort of see two end-member pathways, and the and the reality of the world is likely to be somewhere in between. One would be a kind of free market timescale where wind and solar get cheap, and so they get built, and gradually they replace old coal and natural gas eventually, and you know batteries keep getting cheaper as we install them. That's a kind of technological progress and transition, maybe with a little bit of guidance from government, but mostly letting the market and letting technology do the work. And people buy electric cars because they're better choices, not because the government tells you you have to, or because the government subsidizes them heavily. The other end member is more what David was talking about, that sort of command control, you know, a little bit what like London has done with electric taxis. There will be no more diesel taxis in London in the next few years. They're, they're all getting phased out. That's one way to do it. And you could imagine the problem with that being ultimately in a democracy, people revolt. 
Imagine if you said in New York City that in the next 10 years, we're going to phase out all gasoline-powered taxi cabs, and the price of taxis are going to rise by a factor of three, but you're going to all have electric vehicles. I, I suspect that a lot of New Yorkers would erupt, and the, whoever made that law, whether it was the governor of New York or the mayor of New York City, would get thrown out of office. That's the challenge. But I think, I think somewhere in the, that range is where we're likely to see. And my hope is that technology can be wind in our sails. That is, right now, some of the new technology is looking like it's going to make this problem a lot easier. But, but there are still big obstacles ahead. Great. Thank you both. David, what is solar geoengineering? And how might that be used to mitigate global warming? Uh, solar geoengineering is the idea that humans might deliberately alter the amount of heat the Earth absorbs from the sun. That might be done by putting reflective aerosols, these are just tiny little particles of dust, into the upper atmosphere, the stratosphere, maybe 20 kilometers above our heads. But it could, in principle, also be done by some shields in outer space or by making some cirrus clouds thinner or by making some low-level clouds a little whiter, or maybe even by painting roofs or changing the way crops are planted. There's a, a variety of ways humans could deliberately alter what we call the radiative forcing, the amount of which the Earth's energy is out of balance, is caused to be out of balance by the CO2 that we put in the atmosphere. And the net effect of this would be to somewhat reduce the climate changes, changes in rainfall, changes in temperature, that come from the accumulated amount of long-lived greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide. So the goal would be to reduce the climate risk for a given amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And David, do you imagine solar geoengineering being used as part of a larger decarbonization project? I have no idea what will happen, and I think people's track record of being able to predict what will happen is just terrible. But Personally, I only think it would make sense, and I would only support using solar geoengineering in combination with deep emissions cuts and the ability to remove CO2 from the atmosphere in some mode where it's used to reduce the peak, the climate damage during the peak of CO2 concentrations. Dan, what kind of global governance structures would that kind of a geoengineering project require? Well, I think it's a broader question than that, John. I think, I think the, the climate change itself is going to ultimately push us into new forms of global governance. You know, the top-down Kyoto-style treaty wasn't terribly effective. And so we moved to a very loose Paris agreement where countries offer their own commitments and set their own targets with maybe a little bit of peer pressure, but certainly nobody's telling anybody what to do. There aren't negotiations, per se, the way they were as part of the, the Kyoto process. Uh, ultimately, as climate change gets worse and worse, and I'm talking about 20, 30, 40 years from now, I think that managing the impacts and managing the decarbonization process is going to require some innovations in the form of, of interactions between countries in ways that are hard to imagine right now, but I think they're inevitable. And I think solar geoengineering is an important part of that. I wouldn't see it in isolation. I would see it as part of a broader framework for dealing with a global scale problem. In the same way that um, the world invented, in some ways with the rise of terrorism, 
post 9-11, the world reinvented a variety of structures that have helped manage terrorism. I think the same is going to be true with the threat of climate change. I think some kind of innovation in how nations deal with this are going to, is going to be essential. I can't imagine just one or two superpowers implementing a solar geoengineering scheme that affects every living thing on the planet without any kind of consultation or buy-in. I just don't think that's very stable, and that just wouldn't be very smart. I guess I can imagine a couple of countries still doing it, but I think that wouldn't be a very good outcome because in the long run, I suspect that's not very stable. And we're talking about, even if you were to do it in concert with carbon removal that would ultimately reverse the problem, you still need to do it for a very long time on any kind of you know political timescale. David, what do you think about that? So I, I agree. I mean, new technologies and new interconnections require different kinds of, of global governance. And, and it's happening. I mean, we have global governance imperfectly that manages imperfectly infectious diseases and nuclear weapons and the internet and trade. And these things actually work, have enforcement powers. You know, we have a outer space treaty to take one really interesting example, which applies in principle to, to solar geoengineering because it's very general, which um, had the power to make uh, Russia pay Canada back when they dropped a nuclear reactor, literally, on Canada um, in the early 80s. So I think there are lots of examples like that where global governance has grown. It's not a single top-down thing. It certainly isn't just what happens to be in some overarching treaty like the Kyoto Protocol. There are a lot of underlying governance mechanisms, and we need them, and we need to grow them faster in order to manage all sorts of problems, of which climate is just one. For solar geoengineering, I see kind of two tracks. So one track is the you might call it the UN system process, the IPCC, all these meetings, all this conversation about something that points to a global consensus. I think that conversation is actually very important because it's a way for people to share information and for nations to begin to see what their interests and divergent interests are. I think there's virtually no chance that such a thing will produce a clear answer to implement or not implement, although I think it might produce some interesting enabling or framework treaties that might reduce the chance of, of really ill-thought-out, ill-considered uh, unilateral action. But I think that if solar geoengineering does get on the international agenda for implementation, it'll be because a small set of countries, likely not one, force it on the agenda by basically pushing towards deployment, by essentially saying it's in our fundamental right for preserving us against environmental risks, that we will move forward towards this technology, and that will precipitate the discussion about what actually does happen. I'm not saying that that's good or bad, but I think that's likely how it plays out. I think it's really interesting. There's a quote from H.G. Wells that I like from The Time Machine, where he wrote, we are kept keen on the grindstone of pain and necessity. And that sounds a little harsh, but I honestly think we're in the early stages of experiencing the impacts of climate change. And I think the real question that we don't understand is how the political will to do something about climate change will change as people become more and more frightened about the impacts. I think the fires in California, in Australia, in Greece are just a little bit of a wake-up call, but I don't think we, I mean, that's just to use a bad phrase, the tip of the iceberg. I think, I think it's really difficult for us today 
to imagine the political context of the international discussion of climate change 30 years from now, when literally many weeks in the summer, it may be too hot to go outside in India to do any kind of physical labor or just walk down the street. Yeah. It's hard to imagine the kind of enabling capacity that gives to political discussions. And I think our perception of the global politics will change entirely. But again, maybe that'll be wrong, but I think that's possible. No, I think that's very likely. I think there's ways in which we're still in a bit of a phony war on climate, where there's lots of talk about how it's a top priority and many national leaders find it important to keep part of their political constituency happy to articulate how important climate is. But when you measure it by actual actions, it's clear that it's really not at the top of the political agenda essentially anywhere, but it will get to the top of the political agenda and it will get to it as these uh, impacts get sharper. And it will be later than it should be, but I think that's the way it will play out. Right. That's exactly right. I mean, imagine now when the G7 get together and they come out with some statement on climate, which I guess President Trump didn't want to join, but imagine they actually did all come out with some statement on climate. It's a posturing right now. But when they actually get together to talk about a terrorist attack in Paris or in New York or whatever, they actually talk with their top military advisors and they are serious about what are they going to implement? How are they going to coordinate to actually solve this problem? And you could imagine at some point when the discussions on climate change between world leaders have that sense of urgency, the same as you could imagine after 9-11, that's when we're going to see real change. So you may have answered my next question already, but I'll ask it anyway and see what you say. What is the risk that the fruits of solar geoengineering research might be used to lower Earth's temperature without addressing the underlying cause of the warming? In other words, what is the risk that the fossil fuel industry or even private citizens who are vested in combustion engines in everything from cars to home furnaces to lawnmowers will use the potential technology as cover to keep pumping CO2 into the atmosphere? You asked two completely different questions. One is, what is the risk that some people will attempt to exploit this as cover? I think the answer is that risk is 100%. I think it is certain that, I mean, it is a profound truth that humans act in their individual self-interest most of the time. So it is a no-brainer that some countries, oil companies, whatever, will overclaim at some point about how solar geoengineering might work as a way to avoid emissions cuts. I am certain that will happen. But it, Another question you asked is, what is the chance that it will mean that there's sort of no action to cut emissions? And I think the chance of that is actually also zero since we are, after all, already taking action to cut emissions. We're spending something like $300 billion a year globally on clean energy now, which is really fundamentally motivated by CO2 most of all. And so we are, not as quickly as I want or Dan wants, we are cutting emissions. So to me, reality is in between those two rails. The question is, to what extent will solar geo result in a little bit slower emission cuts than would have happened in a world without solar geo? And the even sharper question is, to what extent it will result in slower emission cuts than it should have been in a world without solar geo that was doing the, the right thing according to some ethical trade-offs? Because, of course, it's actually rational and ethical to do some risk trade-off. 
So if solar geoengineering really reduces some of the risks, long-run risks of CO2, and if your choice about how quick to cut emissions is a trade-off between current cost of emissions cuts and long-run risks of, of CO2, if solar geoengineering reduces the risks a little bit, then it's actually rational and ethical to cut a little bit more slowly, although you still have to cut in the end to zero net emissions. To, you know, I, I step back from it and, and I, I agree with what David says. I think in the real world, again, as the impacts of climate change become more and more apparent to people, as their suffering gets greater, I expect political will to grow. And it doesn't usually grow linearly. It grows in a kind of tipping point way. But as suddenly political leaders around the world are called upon to act because people are scared. And when people are scared, the political demand for action is intense. But here's the problem. Again, the timescale of the climate system is such that it's, as John Holdren said many years ago, we're driving a super tanker. We're not driving a sports car. And so you just can't turn around. You just can't stop very quickly. And so the short time scale of solar geoengineering is one aspect of it that I suspect it makes it incredibly attractive to some political leader in the future when the political will that demands action is so high, it's actually something that can happen on short timescales. And I think that's going to make it very attractive. Uh, that's my suspicion. I wonder what David thinks about that. I think it's likely it'll be very attractive at some point, but I think it's really hard to see. A lot of I've had lots of interviewers ask me if I think solar geoengineering is inevitable, and the answer is certainly not. I, I can easily imagine situations where it's avoided. I think it's just extraordinarily hard to guess how this will play out. David, uh, what are some of the scientific risks of solar geoengineering that you've been thinking about over the last couple of decades, and how can those be minimized? So first of all, the risks are... Um, this isn't like talking about the risks of some thing that's a given, either the risks of a volcano or the risks of some thing that humans are doing, because solar geoengineering is fundamentally an engineering choice. There are a bunch of different ways to do it, and there are certainly ways to do it that would have very high risks that would be just crazy, wantonly destructive. So, so there's no way to separate out discussion about what the risks are from discussion about what engineering choices are made in implementing solar geoengineering. But I think that if you're asking about, <clears throat> I think a good question is to say, what would be the risks of solar geoengineering implemented to try and provide global benefits and even global modification of what we call radiative forcing? And I think the risks of that that, that seem like a given would be some risk of the aerosols themselves. Uh, aerosol air pollution now kills millions of people a year globally, and we're talking about adding more aerosols to the atmosphere. And while there are lots of reasons why those risks might be small, they're not going to be zero. And you're definitely going to be perturbing the atmospheric chemistry, perturbing distribution of aerosols in a way that will have consequences. Another risk is the, is the fact that, that solar geoengineering is not anti-CO2. It's altering the climate in ways that may reduce in most places, most climate changes we care about, but it will not reduce them in every place. In some places, it will certainly increase some climate changes compared to pre-industrial with consequences. And what about so that's very general. I mean, there's a whole host of individual things: so air pollution, ozone, stratospheric ozone loss, acidic rain, uh, changes in the stratospheric circulation that change storm tracks, 
Um, you can go on and on. Uh, changes to direct versus diffuse radiation, solar radiation, which have consequences for plant growth. There's a big list of physical risks like that. What about the risk of termination shock? Maybe you would consider that to be a political risk, but it could be a scientific risk if something were discovered about the sulfate aerosols that had been lofted into the atmosphere, that there was some deleterious effect and you wanted to stop the engineering project. Um, I personally do not see that as a risk in the same categories as others. So first of all, it, it, it's certainly true that we will discover new surprises and new bad outcomes, and that may cause people to change how much they're doing or to transition from one kind of solar geoengineering to another. But I think the risk of very sudden turnoff of large-scale solar geoengineering is pretty low because of individual country-level self-interest. Even countries that initially opposed deployment of solar geoengineering have a very strong self-interest in maintaining the ability to start it once deployed because of the risks of sudden termination. And sudden termination effectively requires unanimity, global unanimity among countries of significant scale in shutting it off. And I think that's a very unlikely outcome. I, I think David's right about this, that um, the termination shock, first of all, I think I'm not so convinced that we would ever put sulfate aerosols up there at this point, given what we know, but let's imagine we put something else. Suppose we put calcium carbonate up there and then we discovered that there was some effects of calcium carbonate that we didn't like. The time scale, and, th and this is why I actually think the way you do it is really important. Some people have advocated low-level cloud modification, and I have always said that's a terrible idea because the time scale is too short. What, what we want to do is be able to, if we're going to do anything, it, it should be on a time scale that gives us, you know, a year, two years, three years, time scale that allows us to adjust without um, too much fine control. So sort of like a steady, a steady hand on the tiller on a very large ship. And let's imagine that we put calcium carbonate up in the air, up in the stratosphere, and then found that it was a problem. If we had to scramble and find out something that we needed as an alternative in the next year, we could probably do that. And I think we would certainly do that rather than have the termination of geoengineering altogether. If it was something that really there was, there was real urgency to do because the impacts of climate change were intolerable. So I think David's right. I think that termination shocks is not, for me, one of the biggest fears ahead. I mean, it's not clear to me if it's a feature or a bug. You wouldn't want a solar geoengineering technology you couldn't turn off. You want it to be adjustable with a timescale of, of probably a few years. And so it's a very odd one. I mean, there are people who hypothesize that what if we just somehow forget how to do this technology or what if there's a global war? So it's important to say that the timescale we need to do this for, if you're doing it as part of a strategy with emissions cuts and, and carbon removal, is a century or two. We've now run transatlantic telecommunications for well over a century, over two world wars. We've run electricity systems in the midst of war for, for, for decades, or in some cases through centuries. I think that given how cheap this is, I think if people want to maintain it, it'll be maintained in anything short of an absolutely apocalyptic global war. And under such a circumstance, the temperature shock from termination will be tiny compared to the impacts of that war anyway, so it just doesn't matter. 
So I actually think there are a lot of terrible things about solar geoengineering, but I don't see this one as, as really all that important. My last question for both of you. Since natural mechanisms of removing CO2 from the atmosphere operate slowly, is there a way to remove carbon from the atmosphere at scale? Or do you imagine that new innovation might be needed to meet that need? Well, there's no question you can remove CO2 from the atmosphere at scale. There's also no question that we don't have mechanisms to do it now that are really cost effective and have low environmental impacts and be scaled to what we need. But because this is a large scale kind of industrial project and what happened over a century, there will of course be innovation. There's no way you do it always with the same technology. I should say you know, I have a self-interest in being involved in, in helping to, to start one company that's working on one technology. My personal view is that if you really are talking about large scale removal, one of the technologies that never is popular, but I would put a lot of effort into is adding alkalinity to the ocean. Essentially, the, the CO2 is a weak acid, and if you add alkaline to the ocean, you tend to push the ocean pH back towards pre-industrial, and you tend to permanently remove the CO2, so it's dissolved in the ocean water in a way that's safe. And I think that that technology is one that requires real work and may not turn out to be useful, but I think there's huge room for innovative effort funded by governments in the public interest. I agree that, that governments should be funding research because if someone did develop a way of doing this at a much, much lower cost, it would be incredibly consequential. And so it's, it's worth funding a lot of different ideas at this stage because we just don't know at this point. That being said, barring a, a radical breakthrough in cost, I think, I think there's a growing consensus, at least on the range of what this is likely to cost. Maybe it'll be wrong, but I think there is a convergence of views, you know, with some range, but I think we have some sense of, of what that's likely to be. And, and I'll tell you what my worry is about this. It's that humans are very good at adaptation. We often in the climate community underestimate human ingenuity when it comes to adapting to difficult situations. We, for example, there's the literature is full of papers about how climate change is going to reduce agricultural output because they take a climate model, look at a relationship between crops and temperature and run the climate model and project out 100 years. And what they never do is think about what farmers are going to do in response. They do the same thing with uh, malaria, with all sorts of problems it sometimes feels a little bit like fear-mongering. And again, these are well-intentioned scientists who are doing this. But to me, I, I actually have a lot of trust in humans' ability to deal with very difficult situations that happen to them locally. We're really bad at collective action problems. We're tribal, we're nationalistic, and we're really bad at long time scale problems. But if your home is under attack, you're gonna figure out, hopefully, that doesn't mean people won't suffer, but it does mean that people are very good at adapting to difficult circumstances. My worry is that let's imagine we stabilize CO2 in the atmosphere and reduce emissions to zero and solar geoengineering is part of the mix. The question is, at that point, will people's willingness to pay for carbon removal persist even as they become used to the current climate circumstances? 
And that's a question that I just don't know, but I worry that that humans' ability to kind of get used to their surroundings means their willingness to sacrifice to return to something that has much lower carbon dioxide is going to be a challenge. I'd, I'd love to hear what David thinks about that. So one thing is I think this problem, I think that threats to humans are the most important problem, but at least as I personally see it, they're not the only problem. I think there's some value in leaving the natural world that we evolved out of, that we inherited, leaving as much of it as we can for future generations to 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 love, to serve as an anchor for their civilizations. And I think that that uh, this is not just, for my mind, about managing human risks. And I think one of the things that actually excites me about solar geoengineering is the possibility of really reducing climate risks in, in places where adaptation isn't relevant in natural systems in ways that we could not otherwise do. I think that Dan's question about willingness to pay once the kind of acute human risk is, is, is reduced, I think is very real. But it's this interesting trade-off because it's also true that societies get more rich. They're often more willing to pay for uh, things beyond just the most necessary and pay to protect the natural world in, in, in more idealistic ways. And we see this in, in all sorts of measurable ways. And the technology cost gets cheaper. So when you play this out in these simple integrated assessment models that just allow you to kind of have these knobs, uh, uh, the, the dollars a ton carbon looks very high in 2100 or 2150 in these models, but the economy is very big and, and richer people tend to be willing to pay more to protect things they love, uh, as you see in, in natural parks and other natural protection. So I'm actually kind of cautiously optimistic that people will pay to do this because at that point, it'll be a pretty tiny fraction of an economy, an economy where people care more about the natural world as a sort of fraction of their total utility. I mean, unlike the unlike the solar geoengineering situation, the carbon removal problem has a huge collective action component of it and, and a huge free rider component of it. So, you know, how willing are people to pay for something if there are a few rogue countries that are continuing to put CO2 into the atmosphere? It's going to be hard. I think it's going to be really difficult. Yep. It will be. Thank you both for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Thanks, John. Thanks a lot, John. This episode of Ask a Harvard Professor was hosted by Jonathan Shaw, and the season is produced by Jacob Sweet and Nico Yatanis. Our theme music was created by Louis Weeks. This third season is sponsored by the Harvard University Employees Credit Union and supported by voluntary donations from listeners like you. To support the podcast, visit harvardmagazine.com backslash support podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Contact us with questions at harvard underscore magazine at harvard.edu.